You're listening to Cancer Covered. When the NCI is looking at new compounds, they'll have a list of 36 different cancer cell lines and they'll apply that compound to all 36 of them. If all 36 die, unfortunately, that's not a miracle cancer treatment. That's a poison. So they have lots of poisons on the shelf that can kill cancer. The key is killing the cancer and letting the human live. You're listening to Cancer Covered with Green Bay Oncology, where we explore pressing cancer issues and look for ways healthcare professionals, patients, and their families can cope better together. I'm Dr. Mitch Winkler. Like it or not, the past has a powerful influence on how we think today, even our thoughts and fears about cancer treatment. To better understand where some of our fears and preconceptions about cancer chemotherapy come from, I sat down with my partner and fellow history enthusiast, Dr. Matthew Ryan. World War I, the use of chemical warfare to try to break the stalemate of trench warfare left lots of damage. And it was recognized that things like mustard gas damaged lymph tissue. That really came apparent actually in World War II and what was called the Bari incident. What happened at Bari? So Bari was part of the invasion of Italy. Uh, Bari is the part of the boot of Italy. And that's where American supplies came in until they could conquer better ports farther north. When they attacked Sicily and Italy, they didn't know how Germany was going to respond. And if Germany responded with chemical warfare, it would take a month to get that from the United States. So the United States actually filled a cargo ship full of chemical warfare, not with the intention of using it, but with having it available if they needed it to respond to chemical warfare. Well, that was a John Harvey. The John Harvey Liberty ship. And at the time, the Allies had lax air security. They thought they had the air battle won. And the Germans surprised them with an attack of over 100 bombers, destroying 27 ships, filling the harbor with U.S. sailors fighting for their lives in an oily mess. And what happened next was even worse. Uh, hundreds of them later died. And there's a cover-up. The American pathologist that did the autopsy recognized a few things. He had experience from World War One, and he recognized and highly suspected that part of what was happening with this mysterious illness was damage from mustard gas. Because the nitrogen mustard gas that was stored on the John Harvey had gotten out or been released. Been released from, yep. And what he noted was different, though, was almost the complete absence of lymphoid tissue uh, in these victims more so than they normally saw. It had been reported, but more so than they normally saw with the inhalation, the normal means of delivering chemical warfare. Why was that so critical? I mean, isn't poison just poison? I mean, people die of poison all the time. Why was it so uh, noteworthy that this compound, nitrogen mustard gas, seemed to have a disproportionate effect on, on blood tissue? I have kind of a good saying on this. What's that? The difference between chemotherapy and poison. Mm -hmm. People ask, why can't you just kill all the cancer cells? Mm -hmm. And we can. We have plenty of medicines that can kill all the cancer cells. They'll just kill all the healthy human cells at the same time. Right. When the NCI is looking at new compounds, they'll have a list of 36 different cancer cell lines. 
and they'll apply that compound to all 36 of them. If all 36 die, unfortunately, that's not a miracle cancer treatment. That's a poison. So they have lots of poisons on the shelf that can kill cancer. The key is killing the cancer and letting the human live. By continuing to ask questions, then that eventually led to the first chemotherapy. The mustard gas was developed into nitrogen mustard. And by its ability to kill lymphoid tissue, it became the first real treatment for lymphomas. There were a couple of pharmacologists uh, that a lot of medical textbooks are still named after, Goodman and Gilman, who made that key observation. And then they also went back to some earlier reports after the attacks in uh, World War One, because similar findings in the lymph tissue and the bone marrow had been reported by a couple of pathologists named Krumbar, who were a married couple. And they, they put that together and they, they started actually infusing nitrogen mustard into people through their bloodstream. They seemed to find out that uh, and through mice experiments, they found out that if you gave it as an injection, it didn't cause the same types of burns that if it got on your skin or if you inhaled that, so it was better tolerated. But that's not to say that it didn't have a lot of side effects. It really did. Yeah. And on a side note, um, our nurses take exquisite care for personal protective gear. When administering chemotherapy, we have um, very strict rules and advice for patients on managing body fluids for 48 hours. And some of that seems overdone. And, and with many modern compounds, it, it probably is. Um, sometimes that creates a, a natural fear that you might harm your, your family. And, th- and that's not the case. Now they're just common sense precautions. But if you think of the history of chemotherapy, they were dealing with a very serious compound that they needed to be exceptionally careful in handling. Mm-hmm. And it it worked. I mean, the at least in the the first couple of experiments that uh, that Goodman and Gilman did. I mean, they they were able to induce a temporary remission in a lymphoma patient, and it has never happened before. Correct, never happened before. Have you ever given anyone nitrogen mustard? I have. I have too. It's still out there. It's you can use it in fulminant liver failure based on its metabolism, and lymphoma is so responsive to it. Uh, in training, we had someone with aggressive lymphoma. Fulminant liver failure and nitrogen mustard turned that around so that mm-hmm. they could then get standard treatment and, and survived. So Goodman and Gilman did probably the first experimentation in a, in a patient, the first successful cancer remission with nitrogen mustard. But they really didn't get maybe all of the acclaim for being the uh, earliest innovators, did they? No, a, a couple of reasons. The Bari incident itself was part of a government cover-up, and all that information was locked down and wasn't released until actually the 80s. So many of our servicemen died of this mysterious illness that we well knew that it was from their exposure to uh, mustard gas. Why was there such a cover-up about chemical weapons in World War II? Yeah, I, I think the fact that we had it there was kept secret. and. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, after World War One, the gas attacks were so notorious and people were so horrified that after World War One, the international community really banded together and said, this is beyond the pale. Chemical weapons are, are a war crime. And then with Goodman and Gilman, they worked for the military. And so the military kept a lot of their work secret at first. And by the time they were able to publish it, then others had made parallel progress and kind of stole the thunder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was their paper came out, I think, within a couple of months. I don't remember if it was right before or right after Sidney Farber, who was 
a pathologist working out of Johns Hopkins was doing experiment with anti-metabolites. And he had done a clinical trial in a single patient using a drug aminopterin that was an antifolate and induced a remission in childhood lymphoma leukemia. It was published in the New England Journal, and it was regarded as the first major success. And it really launched Sidney Farber's career, launched the American Cancer Society's really successful fundraising. I mean, it was it, it changed everything. Discovering the first drugs that could kill cancer cells while leaving normal cells relatively unharmed was a massive step forward. But follow-up studies of those first remissions quickly showed us there was an even bigger problem to solve, how to keep those patients in remission. So for a while, it was just one successful drug taken as far as it could go. And the truth is, although the remissions were dramatic, it's the first time they'd been seen, they really didn't last very long, did they? Right. And then it took some brave individuals to take the idea of combining these very toxic agents in combinations, finding out what the correct doses were, the frequency, the duration. Um, another scientist with a mouse model found that you know each round of treatment might kill 90%, 99% of the cancer cells. But then if you stop, they would regrow. Mm-hmm. And so by doing that in series and reducing it by 99% each time, you know, maybe at some point you could kill that last cell and create a remission and turn it into a cure. Who, where did some of the early innovators of combining drugs, where were, where were they working out of? Uh, the NCI. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, uh, Fry and Fryreich. Right. Yep. They were, I mean, besides being courageous innovators at the time, not everybody took a positive view of what they were doing. No, this is an era without good supportive medicine, without good antibiotics, definitely not antifungals, without good nausea medicines. It, it was very, very rough treatment, toxic to, you know, unfortunately, people dying from the treatment and, mm-hmm. and not the disease. One thing they did um, was learn not to just do it by themselves and and treat a few patients and then report, hey, three patients did well. They started working collaboratively with other early pioneers of treatment and agreeing on the idea of protocols. We're all gonna do things the same. Seems fundamental now, but it hadn't been done before in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, science requires reproducibility and consistency so that you know the thing that you're measuring is actually having the effect. Yeah. also minimizes bias because nobody's nobody's uh, free from the hazards of bias. We all have a tendency to see what we want to see. Yeah, and and with some background in tuberculosis treatment, even the idea of randomization that doctors are going to choose certain patients to get the treatment versus the placebo or the old treatment, and by randomizing patients, uh, which is really hard, it's hard for us to this day takes the choice of who gets the treatment and who gets the placebo out of the doctor's hands. Right. Even the doctors don't know who's getting the placebo and who's getting the, yep. the, the treatment. So that is fairly distributed between the two groups, and the two groups can be as equal as possible, much more equal than a doctor choosing. Mm-hmm. And that all came out of that early cancer research. Mm-hmm. The other thing they did was, and again, logical, they did A versus B. B is better. B became the standard. And then they did C. And they 
did a series of studies that are still ongoing. That original first step in this is children's leukemia, ALL, they're still on protocols that started with protocol one. And they've built upon that both to increase cure rates and thankfully recently also to decrease toxicity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's no accident that that rigorous approach that's been built on incremental progress, you know, going from the 1950s and the 1960s when childhood ALL was universally fatal. Now, this is a disease that has a 90 plus percent cure rate if you're diagnosed, you know, before the age of 11. I mean, it's 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 really turned around in, in a few generations, you know, because of some people who were willing to look in some pretty horrible places for answers and make make connections that other people had made and then were willing to make some scary adjustments and also be disciplined enough to subject their results to the rigors of science, not just what we want to be true, not just the results that we want to be true, but yeah, uh, the- what's the, what does the science show? No one should carry the burden of cancer alone. And while every physician approaches cancer with their own unique skill set, we all agree on this one simple idea. Hi, I'm Dr. Gayu, a physician at Green Bay Oncology. The truth is, a cancer diagnosis can make you and your loved ones feel isolated and overwhelmed. And these moments are exactly when you need support the most. That's why all our doctors rely on the support of our team of qualified medical professionals. And here's two of them. Hi, I'm Madison Young. And I'm Tom Beckers. As social workers, we see how meaningful connection brings strength and healing to patients and loved ones facing cancer every single day. Our patients and physicians agree, sharing your experience in a safe space with others is powerful and therapeutic. That's why we offer a free monthly virtual and in-person cancer support group facilitated for you wherever you are on your cancer journey. So whether by internet, phone, or in person, you'll have access to the support of a community on a similar path. To join us, visit gboncology.com and click on support. If the first half of the history of chemotherapy is the story of how fearful it is, and I think we're still heirs to that legacy, and I think many of our patients are still heirs to that legacy. I mean, how many people, Matthew, do you meet in the clinic, uh, particularly people from uh, older generations that come in and they say, no matter what, I'm not taking chemotherapy. Yeah, that first half of the history of chemotherapy, um, both good and bad, had improved response rates, remission rates, cure rates, mm-hmm. came at a cost. Those medicines with their toxic backgrounds mm-hmm. had lots of the known side effects that we think of, hair loss, mm-hmm. low blood counts, infections, especially nausea. And nausea is, it, it's. I think people think nausea and they think in terms of, I had a gut bug or stomach flu, or I had a bad hangover. And I think most people have familiarity with that experience and how unpleasant it is. But the kind of nausea that these drugs in the in the early days cause is, is well beyond that. Yeah. So one of those discoveries that led to better cure rates along the way was the discovery of cisplatin and then its early use in testicular cancer regimens that turned testicular cancer even if metastasized into a curable disease. Which it still is. But cisplatin is one of the most nauseating medicines known to 
and the doses are are quite high. So those men, young men with advanced testicular cancer that got cisplatin to cure their their cancer, they were so sick, they had to be admitted to the hospital and basically given enough Valium to make them sleep for a week and not remember how bad it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were throwing up all week. Mm -hmm. The memory was so powerfully bad that just the idea of coming into clinic for that follow-up visit, the smell of clinic, the appearance of clinic would induce a sudden, what we call anticipatory nausea. Mm -hmm. Um, That didn't really change until we had medicines that could go block those nausea receptors prior Mm -hmm. to the chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So in the early eighties, Zofran became available and Mm -hmm. by administering Zofran prior to cisplatin or other chemotherapies, you can block the nausea receptors Mm -hmm. and that's made a world of difference. Nausea now is really the exception rather than the rule. I think most people uh, don't throw up at all. And we're still using the same drug in the same doses that we were when before drugs like ondansetron, we had to hospitalize people. And you, you would hear these stories when we had some of the founders of our practice on the first season of our podcast talking about it. They, you know, all of those people were, were hospitalized or scheduled admission because there was just no other way to get them through it. And that, that to me really is the story of the second half of the history of medical oncology. It's about taking these drugs. Okay. We found what's effective. We found what's worked. Now, how do we make it tolerable? And it's of getting the tolerability right, of getting the doses right, and finding out not just what dose works, but how little can we get away with. And it's really been about paring down the approach and, and uh, making the approach more tolerable and much less fearful. Yeah. Th- there is a second revolution in supportive care, starting with the nausea medicines, the better antibiotics, mm-hmm. the antifungals, and then the realization that Um, more is not always better, that we can adjust each treatment to the individual and get the same good results by paying attention to side effects. If if you make someone so sick that they can't complete their second and third treatment, you're not going to cure them. You're not going to help them. Mm -hmm. Matthew, does it ever bother you that our day-to-day work has such a poisonous legacy? I think it's a healthy reminder, to be honest. I, I am frustrated when Hollywood still has you know, people throwing up all the time on treatment mm-hmm. and and that plays into people that may not pursue a treatment that mm-hmm. they want. But mm-hmm. no, I, I think we need a dose of levity, of recalling our roots, mm-hmm. where we came from so that we can do a better job going forward. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us on Cancer Covered. Please let us know what you think by leaving a review. To learn more, read our blog, request an appointment, search available clinical trials, or even apply to become a member of the team, go to gboncology.com.